Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. The award-winning film Dry Ground Burning follows the release from prison of Leia, who is returning home to her Brasilia favela of Sol Naciente to join up with her half-sister, Chitara, the fearless leader of an all-female gang that steals and refines oil from underground pipes and sells the gasoline to a clandestine network of motorcyclists. Living in constant opposition to Jair Bolsonaro's fiercely authoritarian and militarized government, Chitara's women claim the streets for themselves as a declaration of a radical political resistance on behalf of ex-cons and the oppressed. The film is called Dry Ground Burning. It was co-directed by Adele Quiros and Joanna Pimenta, and we're joined today by co-director Joanna Pimenta. Joanna, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much uh, for uh, this work and you along with your co-director, co-writer, Adirle Quiros. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the inspiration. Well, we started making the film um, a, a very long time ago. I think that's maybe seven, eight years ago. Um, and when we started, it was still during um, the the presidency um, of Dilma Rousseff, uh, who followed Lula, the, the second mandate of Lula um, as president of Brazil, is now on his third. It was a moment when um, there was a lot of hope, I guess, and there was a lot of also possibility regarding the narrative around oil in Brazil. So these um, oil reserves in the pre-salt layer um, had just been um, discovered and Lula and Dilma had worked together on a law uh, that was about to pass Congress that said that basically 75% of all royalties from nationalized oil uh, would have to go into education, uh, culture and public health. So it was a moment where kind of like this political revolution could happen in Brazil, right? Because um, you would be injecting billions and billions of reais into these three areas. So you could have a public university in a favela like Solnacent because all this money would have to be spent somehow uh, within these three main areas. And so we were we started the film by wanting to make an adventure film, an action film, where uh, people from these peripheries Ceylandia is the city where Adirlai uh, is from, where he's lived over the last 50 years, and also where he's made um, other feature films. Um, so it's a place that he's intimately connected to and that I've been working in for the past eight, nine years now uh, that we've been working together there. So we wanted to basically think about how to make a film that would um, sort of embody this adventure that was kind of like a taking place around one of the main national narratives or the national the, the narrative around oil. Um, but think about what it would mean for it to be appropriated by the popular classes. So by uh, people who would be living in this periphery and have to rethink and reconfigure how to deal with this oil uh, economy yeah. um, that was finally coming to them. What happened was that basically from the moment in which we wrote the film and um, because we work with non-professional actors with a very small crew uh, and we film for a very long time, from the moment in which we started writing the film to the moment in which we began to film it and then I guess two years later edit 
a lot happened politically that really changed uh, what we were making. So uh, there was a coup that deposed the president, Dilma Rousseff, another uh, right-wing president, Michel Timmer, um, who was her vice president at the time, took office. And then two years later, we had um, the election of Jair Bolsonaro. So when we start filming, our proposal is already an anachronism, right? So uh, these oil reserves had already been uh, sold uh, uh, to multinational, um, international companies for very, very cheap. So they weren't even um, Brazilian anymore. Um, the law had obviously been nixed in Congress, and uh, we were dealing with a completely different political landscape for in which we could start making the film. So we decided to change it a lot. So if we were beginning with an anachronism, then they couldn't find oil. They'd have to steal it from the government, um, and the film would have to kind of like really deal much more directly with the public policy around the imprisonment of the people uh, in the peripheries, uh, the way that removes them from the political process of elections. Um, and so the film began somewhere and ended somewhere completely different um, from where it started. That is an amazing story. That <laughs> truly is. But well, thank goodness that you adapted to the situation in the way that you did, because it is a powerful film. It is told from a point of view that we don't often see in film. It's told from the point of view of very powerful women, essentially taking the narrative over, taking over the narrative of their lives and their and their destination, if you will. Um, and I, I wanted. There's so many issues that are brought up in 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 terms of telling the story, but you mentioned oil and power. I think that 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 dynamic in and of itself is something that natural resources, who gets to decide where that money goes to, not the people, but someone else, is really an, a kind of an, um, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm sorry. Uh, the It's kind of a, um, I can't think of a word. Sorry. I'll just move on. Let me just move to another thing. I can't think of this word. Um, <laughs> but it is such an informing um, part of the film and and sets in motion so much. Um, boy, I just, that just threw me off. Um, let's talk about how you went about filming this. You're not only the co-writer, co-director, but you're also the cinematographer. What were the kind of barriers that you were dealing with in terms of filming? As I said to you before we got started, this has the feel of an epic film. This is something that it's been compared to Mad Max for some reasons. Uh, some I think that are fair, but not, not nonetheless. I think this has its own kind of uh, uh, in um, thriving narrative that feels like an epic, but it feels intimate at the same time. Let's talk a little bit about how you went about doing that. Sure. You mentioned something um, earlier um, that I thought was interesting. You mentioned that um, it was good that we got to adapt um, to. Um, what was happening politically. And I think the two, the two questions, uh, this question of kind of like adaptation or leaving in a film that reacts to the urgency of what is happening every day in our lives, in the lives of the country, in the lives of the city. Um, and your question about cinematography are kind of related to one another because they, they, they kind of, um, they're connected to this idea of what kind of mode of production do we want to uh, employ to make a film like this or to make a film in a place like this, I guess. So we were able to adapt because we basically, we, everyone's on a contract. The actors are on, um, are on a 12 month contract with the film. 
And so we don't have to film every day. Uh, we basically spend the resources um, to buy ourselves a lot of time to work. So we meet, we talk, sometimes we film, sometimes we don't film. Um, but nothing, so we're working with non-professional actors, right? So we're working with people who've never acted before. Um, and so it's important to have that space um, for us to understand what we want to make together, uh, what we want to work on together and how to go about it without the pressure of uh, having to shoot three scenes today on a 12 day, 12 hour uh, schedule, like most fiction films um, tend to do. Um, that's a way of working that, you know, I have nothing against it. I know of amazing fiction films that were shot that way, but wouldn't necessarily work for the kind of work, um, for the kind of work we're trying to do here. Likewise, we don't close a street and so, or we don't uh, bring a lighting truck um, into Solnashint. And so if the neighbor is having a party on Saturday night, um, if this sounds too loud, we just won't shoot and we'll come back the next day. Um, and so there's a way in which the film also adapts itself to the life of the city. The cinema, there's a way in which making the film is not bigger than the life of anyone else who's working and living um, alongside us. And we all, um, but Adirle has lived there, as I mentioned, for the last 50 years. And I, I also live there when I'm there. So we kind of like share space and filmmaking shares space um, as a form of labor uh, in that way. Um, then regarding the cinematography, I it's just it's just me. Um, and um, um, an assistant, Natalia Broom, uh, who's uh, this uh, young woman from Ceylandia. And then um, Adirlei um, doubles in being the camera car driver for the, <laughs> the car sequence. So um, it's basically, we're, we're super rigorous. Uh, we work a lot in terms of establishing light, thinking about how we want to uh, do this shot, thinking about framing. Um, but we also um, work, I think, in a in a particular way. We work only with um, natural light or lights uh, found on location. So what Natalia and I do is that we go around all the electrical stores in Selandia before we start the films and we kind of like do an inventory uh, of the lights that exist um, in the city. So in people's homes, um, but also outside like public lighting, we have a lot of those uh, so very old sodium vapor um, lamps that, that just basically are used in public lighting uh, in the city. Um, and so we installed uh, them um, thinking about how they're going to work with the film, but also thinking about uh, thinking that um, everything that we that we create needs to be immediately available because we we never know what we're going to film the next day. Um, and so there's no there's no I mean, we can if we take five hours to light um, something, um, the actor is going to be unfocused by the time we start, uh, you know, just like other things will happen. Happen. And so we need to be able to just move somewhere, Th think about the night before we're going to shoot the next day, then just go all together, walk in, turn on a light switch or do a very simple installation and just be ready uh, to shoot and to focus um, on, on other things. And so the work of cinematography is, is a little bit, uh, goes a little bit towards that. So there's ways in which like we, we in advance, we we installed lamps in all the cars the car the characters were using. Uh, we figured out how we wanted to film uh, the scenes in motion. So it's basically like a pickup truck that we rented uh, with a very simple structure on the back, um, and we kind of create the lights in each uh, set as they are being built. So the the light in the oil platforms also changes throughout the film because it was 
it was changing as the platforms were being built, right? So we keep thinking about what colors do we want to use for this part of the film uh, versus the other. Um, but then it's it's very simple. So it's just basically two of us um, uh, doing the camera. I do focus and lighting. Natalia helps me with all the technical things also to assemble everything um and she's really good and um Adelaide and I discussed a lot what we wanted uh, the film to be what we wanted the image the film of the film to be and we tried to do a handheld camera first and we really felt, felt like the the rigidity of the locked in camera um really functioned uh, because we filmed a lot so we filmed for 18 months right so there's a lot we didn't use in the film um so that allowed us to kind of like um also for me as a director, alongside being a cinematographer, to be focused on on acting and performance, on structure in a way that I wouldn't necessarily be if I was constantly moving and performing myself with the handheld camera, right? So yeah. the, the locked-in camera had that function, but also it allowed for a space where the, the scene could go on for an hour if the conversation was interesting or if something interesting were happening. So we could kind of like create this very elongated spaces um, for the actors to to perform and that was useful for us it also kind of like uh, created this rigidity um in terms of like thinking about space space and spatialization that we wouldn't have uh with a, a, hand, a handheld camera necessarily um and you mentioned um, this idea of an epic film um, so there's no cinema in Ceylandia, right um this, the closest cinema is an hour away in Brasilia and so um, for us, it was really important to be able to share um, a cinematic imaginary with the people we were working with. And the, the cinematic graphic imaginary we shared were was was that of the films we had all seen on television. So the Westerns, the uh, Mad Max, Blade Runner. Um, so the, kind of like the big um, grand narratives that we could all um, find a place to situate ourselves in. And so thinking about genre is both but offers the possibility of of introducing fictional devices into um, a space that is much more non-fictional, uh, non-fiction, non sorry, um, a space that we're working with people from that city, in that city in specific, but we're thinking about a cinematographic imaginary. Um, so that's, that's a useful space for us to work with. But also it's it's a space that we share, it's the references that we know. And so this idea of like creating an epic that goes towards the genre is both a possibility and a necessity. Um, there's then films that we watched together. You know, um, I think that after working with Chitara, one of the main um, characters for a year, we showed her um, Apocalypse Now. We decided, oh, let's watch Apocalypse Now together. And then she also watched the making of that um, Elaine Coppola made uh, about the film. And um, she was like, oh, now I understand what you want. And um, Adelaide and I were kind of like taken aback by it because it's like, oh, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> if we're not, we hope we're not that uh, demanding. But I think she understood something by watching the film and the performances and the intensity with which it had been made. Um, I think she understood something about what we had been living for the past year and like the struggle to try to make that film, you know, and at a very, very 
much much smaller scale than apocalypse now obviously but you know the struggle of like spending a week preparing a sequence and then we go film it and the police comes so then we stop and then we have to spend another week thinking about another place to do it um and so that sort of like day-to-day fight um yeah. for the film i think that's what she was taking from it so you know it's 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 super interesting to then for us to also begin watching things together after a certain point i think because um we don't want to do it. We want to do it after they know what they're doing as actors um, mm-hmm. so that they don't feel like they need to respond to something we're offering to them. Um, so we start watching films together kind of like late in the process. But then that also becomes um, an important part of it. Also thinking of, of, of thinking about the the dimension and the, and the scope of what uh, we want to make together. One more technical question. And that was, what did you primarily shoot on? What did you use? Um, Sure. So I use the Sony F5, um, which is kind of like um, the bigger camera. There's the, the FS5, which is like the little small one. That wasn't that one. It's kind of like a, a big uh, 4K camera. And then I used a set of uh, Zeiss um, lenses, CP2 and CP3s. Um, yeah. And that was it, basically. Yeah. I, I Again, and I love that how you brought into the conversation the uh, the epic, as I was trying to, trying to get to that, um, because... Because at essentially all of the films that you mention as references, they're about the characters. They're about they're about the external journey as much as they are the, in, the internal journey of those characters, as what they're going through and how they're how they see the world. Um, I do want to let our listeners know that we're speaking with Joanna uh, Pimenta, and she is a, the co-director along with Adelaide Quiros um, of the incredible film called Dry Burning Ground, and it is out. And I wanted to let people know that it is going to be in Los Angeles. And I had this information up in front of me, and I apologize one second. It is going to be here in Los Angeles starting on April. My screen went really big for some reason. Um, it'll be at American Cinematheque on April 22nd. It'll be screening there. It'll be screening around the country. And I, I urge you to go to the Grasshopper um, film website, go to grasshopperfilm.com and you'll see a link for uh, dry ground burning. And I urge you to check out this film. Again, it's all the reasons you just described for the making of how you went about doing it, but it is the journey of these two sisters and the importance of their their relationship, uh, half-sisters. They're, they are the center of the film and it is about agency, power, Getting, having control of their lives. There's so much in their journey here. Um, creating these two characters, what were the more important things for you to to essentially develop in the way that they that we we see them on screen? Um, so we 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 the way we work is basically we build archetypes uh, for the characters, um, and we we write them out uh, in a script. Yeah, one quick, quick. I'm sorry to sure. interrupt, but in terms of using non-professional actors, how did that impact how you went about creating it, or did it? And yeah, so um, it just before, so before even knowing Shitara or Laya, we had kind of like written them as characters, I guess. Um, so for Shitara, we we wrote about this uh, woman who was around 35 years old. So she was the second generation of women who lived in Zelandia. She was the, the daughter of one of the women who had uh, been removed up to the city uh, and had built the city from scratch. 
Um, so we knew that we wanted to work uh, we, with um, the second generation of women in Ceylandia. Uh, we wrote down that she worked at a, at a gas station and smoked a lot. And because of the gas um, that kind of like stayed in her body uh, from her job um, and, the, and the smoke from the, the fire, the smoke from the cigarettes, um, she'd always be on the verge of catching on fire. So then for about six months, um, we kind of like went around the city and tried to find who Shitara could be. Uh, we searched in bars, in gas stations, in bakeries. We would talk to people. As you may imagine, Mike, it's uh, it's, dif it's difficult to make a film in a place where there isn't even a, a cinema, right? So the idea that a, a film could be made in a place like Solnashint is not part of people's imaginaries. So even like to convince people to come uh, to our little office and have a conversation with us um, was already kind of like a, a lot of negotiation had to take place. And you should say like, no, we're filmmakers for real. You know, first every every woman would think it, it, it was a porn film, right? That would be their first question. Like, no, we're filmmakers, we make films. So you can look us up on YouTube. Uh, and finally we could sit down. So finally, when we found Chitara, the, what we did is that we gave her the script to read. Um, she read the script. We, we don't shoot the script. So the script is only functional for that first meeting. But in the script, it does say exactly what kind of film it is, that it's political, that it's a war, that it's against a girl. So everyone knows what they're getting themselves into. There's no kind of like surprises at the end to that extent. Um, we just don't film the dialogue or anything we've written because what they bring is, of course, so much more interesting, right, afterwards. So she read the script and she finished um, and she said, well, I know how to shoot a gun. I smoke a lot and I worked at a gas station. So I'm in and we did a little test with her and we immediately started shooting. Um, so <coughs> she thought it was there from the start. Um, she, she was coming with us the moment we rented the lot where we ended up building the oil platform. She was with us. Um, she moved in. She began living there. So she was both living in that space and accompanying the construction of the lot. Um, while at the same time, we would shoot at night and she was working a lot on her character. Um, so it's Every so her character is a mix of what she brings and what we propose to her. Um, so it's partly fictional, partly non-fictional. Um, we filmed for Shitara for, for we, we filmed with Shitara for about eight months before Laya um, came into the film. Laya was in prison. Um, she had been in prison for seven years. And um, another another woman in the film, Andrea, who has a political party, um, had been in prison with Laya. So she would she was always bringing news uh, to Shitara. So a lot of the scenes we had shot um, were about Laya and Shitara talking about Laya. And so we were at some point we were like eight months in. I was desperate, much more than other. Like, look, we have to find a professional actor who can come in now in the middle of a shoot and play Laya because otherwise this is going to be a disaster. It's just like this is a film where everyone is just like Laya is two meters tall and her hair is down to her knees and she took seven rubber bullets in jail and she didn't fall. And the film ends and you never see Laya. What you know, people are just going to ask for their money back. And um, eight months into shooting, Laya just came out of prison. So because she was she was in for a short for a four year sentence, but because of bad behavior, um, she kept being prolonged. Um, one day she was just released, and um, two weeks after um, she was released, she was filming with us. So we had to completely reinvent the film when she came in, right? Um, because she was she was everything we could imagine and more um she was amazing she's an amazing actress she, she's a she's a force in the film and 
So um, when she came in, we basically went back and, and started from scratch a little bit. So we kept some of the material we had shot, but we knew we had to invent a film um, for Shitara and Laya. So their relationship, as it plays out, it's a little bit, um, it was about then structuring how to film things as they were playing out. They hadn't seen each other. They're half sisters, but they hadn't seen each other in seven years. They never really grew up together, um, but they have a lot of memories. They they share mostly through um, their father um, because they have, they have a father in common. And so we just proposed to them, look, let's um, record, let's record the conversation um, the two of you would have um, as Leia would be exiting prison. And we did it, you know, very soon after she had been released. So they were actually like thinking about their memories and what they wanted to say to each other. Um, and so then what we did is that we structured a little bit the filming in order to get them to inhabit that space um, that they inhabited in real life of two half sisters who found who really loved each other but who haven't seen each other in a very very long time we're kind of like finding again how to be supportive of each other and live a life together after after so long that scene that scene in the bar two of them are sitting there I think it's a bar they're sitting at and they're talking to one another it's her house yeah so that was, was her house I'm sorry yeah so that's that was Leia's first day of shooting um actually yeah, which is kind of amazing um, because so she came out, she came out and we were um, the first shot we shot with her is in the film. Uh, it's the one right before um, that shot that you're talking about that is very long. Um, and it's a shot that is out of focus, even if it shouldn't have made it. But um, we both felt so attached to it because, um, you know, after filming for some time with someone, I can react to their body movements and do adjust adjust focus very quickly but um with her we had built such um sort of like um an imaginary of her before seeing here that she was she was kind of like really scared because she had just been you know she after seven years, she didn't even know what a cell phone was. She got she went to prison before cell phones were a reality in that place. So she was adjusting to a lot and she was also making a film. Obviously the first thing that drew her in was that she would have a con and a job, right? So, uh, which is hard for someone just released from prison. So she was taking this as a job. It was her profession. Now, didn't think this would ever be a film necessarily. She just thought like, okay, I have a job. I'll show up. They'll pay me. Uh, but she didn't, she wasn't lured in by this idea of cinema or anything like that, right? But so she was very uncertain but we were very uncertain too because she was such a force that we couldn't even find a way to really shoot her right so that that first shot that we shot with her and then sits down she sits down and she and Shitara do that you know it's a 30 minute monologue uh, that I think that eight minutes are in the film uh, where they're thinking about their father and their relationship to their father uh, and what we do is that we after recording it we begin repeating it so um, we started repeating that a couple of times that day and in the following days and um, after after anyone would say cut, Leia would just disappear. So she would run away. Um, I would find her on the roof, in the corner, smoking. And I told her, like, Leia, um, I'm sorry that we repeat things so much, but it's like, you know, sometimes we need to get a different angle on the same shot. Something happens in the light or we want to get to a different part of the conversation. And she's like, no, 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 I totally get it. It's the same as in prison. Uh, when you're in for very long, there's a lot of turnaround uh, with the other people that come in for shorter sentences, right? So you have to keep repeating the same story. And if you lose um, the momentum with which you tell your story, you, you lose your voice of command. 
So I'm used to repeating things the same way over and over again, which was interesting. And it was like, you know, she was, she was, she very quickly understood how to make films. You know? She very quickly understood where to look, how to sustain her look long enough so that we could use it as a cut point. And so the process then becomes about finding, finding again, it's like about finding a ground that we share uh, amongst ourselves that they can bring from their own experiences that we can think about how it can function within the film. Yeah, and so it's a little bit like kind of like a back and forth. Well, there's just so much in the making of this film, Not you know, on top of the fact that, as I said earlier, such a powerful film. I don't know how much what you just described played into the way the film unfolds. It seems to move between these two worlds of narrative and documentary. And, mm-hmm. and, and it sounds like, from what you're describing, a very natural way in which that happened if that's if that's a fair way to say is your film as it's been described a kind of a hybrid of documentary and narrative mm-hmm. in our previous work we had already um kind of like tried to move um i think in that direction um but with with demarcating more clear grounds i think um Adil made a film called white out black in which is a documentary film set in the future so it starts in 2069 so it's already kind of like an oxymoron right how could you make a non-fiction film that is set in the future how could you record the future as a documentary right but in this film we both set out to to make something that we wanted to do uh, we wanted to really blur the lines. Uh, we just had no idea how to get there. We didn't want it to be about it being a documentary or a fiction. Uh, we wanted, we we were hoping that people would never know where which space they were inhabiting, and that really didn't matter. Somehow, we just didn't know what that would mean as a process. It it was on our minds all the time but uh, not as a form necessarily. Uh, we just hope that by complicating the process enough um, in terms of like not really caring about those boundaries, we would arrive somewhere that could be interesting. So we normally tell the actors that we don't, um, there's two rules, I guess. Uh, one is that we don't care whether what they tell us is true or not, as long as it's true for their character in the film. So as long as it belongs to the imaginary we're working on, it can be their story, their friend's story. It can be a story that they make up. Um, it doesn't really matter to us and we'll never ask. Also, we're dealing with a space where people are being asked about the truth all the time, but often by police or the judge in court, right? So as filmmakers, we didn't want that to be the space. Like it couldn't be something that we were, um, that like sort of like a Biden to the fact uh, couldn't never be the space that we were working with. And also fiction also affords the possibility of people not having to live the reality that they live for our conception, right? So not having to show how, you know, uh, neglected Sonashint is, how horrible um, prison is, how you have 12 people living in a cell for four inmates. Um, and But affords them, fiction affords them the possibility to reinvent that reality for the camera. Leia would be a legend in the film. The only promise we made um, to them and that we completely fulfilled, that's why the film is two hours and a half because it needed to be half an hour longer than uh, maybe what it could have been because it couldn't end with Leia going back to prison. So the only promise we did to them was like, you're, you're going to win. So regardless of what happens, regardless of what we make together, you, Leia is going to become a legend 
of Sonnenschind. So it's Chitara, and this is a film where you're gonna you're gonna we're gonna win at least in within the space that we can uh, build together. So you're not gonna lose. So fiction affords a possibility for them to reinvent their stories, thinking knowing that they will become the legends of the city a little bit. And then the second rule is uh, basically if um, if they decide they don't want to include something that they've said um, out loud in, in the moment of shooting, uh, we'll make a note and we won't include it. And there's no discussion. Uh, it's not the same thing as, as saying that they will have input in the editing. So the editing is mine and Adela as we co-sign the film. Um, you know, we'll carry it on our back for better or worse. Uh, so we're making those decisions. But if they say something, if they say someone's name that they, you know, could get them into trouble or they don't want to talk about that person on camera, they'll immediately say it uh, that same day or the day after. And we won't even ask why. And regardless, even if it was the best shot we ever made, we won't use it. There's that trust being built in, uh, which I think that then make us, makes us all very comfortable. Like the rules with which we work are very clear from the start and they, they're the same. They don't change until the end of the film. What an amazing <laughs> film, Dry Ground Burning. And it's a sweeping kind of story that, that is told here in a, in a story where the actors, the, the characters, are we're not used to seeing in the roles that we are seeing them here. Uh, my congratulations to you and Adelaide for your work. And I, again, want to urge people, the film will be uh, playing here at the um, American Cinematheque here in Los Angeles on April 22nd. Go to the website at grasshopperfilm.com. That's the distributor. And then you'll see Dry Ground Burning for for information about about this and a lot more regarding the film and uh i'm um i'm honored to have you on the program to be able to talk about it thank you so much for uh giving us such a an in-depth look at the film and the film and the making of the film and um joanna pimenta as well as adderle kiros the co-directors co-writers you are cinematographer uh adderle was a, a producer Remarkable. Thank you so very much. And, Thank you. Um, Thank you for your thoughtful questions and oh, for well, your like. Oh, my my pleasure. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music